so we did have this, this seminar. Uh, we called it Deconstructing Doubt and Keeping with the series title, where we just did kind of a deep dive into all things faith and reason and doubt. We talked about history and science and, and how that intersects with faith and had a good time. But at the end of it, Amy and I were both just whipped. She had, she had uh, you know, given people snacks for days at this retreat. She had 80, 80 people here, and she had provided all of that and made all those arrangements uh, together. So she was whipped. I had taught like six or seven hours. I was whipped. And so we got home uh, yesterday afternoon, and it was just after we cleaned up, and we're just kind of like, you know, what time can we go to bed and it still be respectable? Have you ever had those days where you're thinking, okay, it's like three in the afternoon. I can't go to bed now. That's not a little late, but, but how early can we do this? And so we tried to push it out as far as we could. Uh, it reminded me, when, I remember one time when the kids were little, uh, Amy and I both had the flu the same time, and we're just trying to keep them all alive. You know, just keep, keep all the kids alive at the same, that's great. And we were just kind of in a comatose state all, all evening. I'm sure grumpy and all of those kind of things to one another. And so we went to bed, finally pushed out to a respectable time, went to bed. And at about 1230, my, my puppy started whimpering in his cage over here to my left. I'm thinking, oh, this pitiful little whimper, like I need to go out, you know. Okay, great. So I'm just ignoring it. I'm thinking maybe Amy will hear it in a minute and she'll do something with it. Because <laughs> I'm a good husband, you know. So I'm, listening, I'm laying there and a little whimpering saying, well, then finally the dog whimpers enough that he wakes Amy up. So now I've got whimpering on both sides of me. <laughs> These little pimp, pitiful sounds on both sides that I need to do something. And so finally I get up and take the dumb dog out. And, and you know, it's like sometimes you'll have times when like a few seconds feels like moments and moments feel like forever. Well, this is one of those. And so... But it really was like 10 minutes. I went back and looked. I was like, that seemed like forever. But it was like 10 minutes that I'm walking around my backyard at 1230 at night trying to the dog find the right spot. Like he's sniffing every square inch of grass that we have in our yard. And I'm just trying to convince him, you know, with all the persuasion I have at 1230 to do something. I don't care what he do, something. And so he sniffed around, went over to the left side, the right side. We covered the whole ground and I'm in a a bad mood at this point, right? So finally, he, he gets to a conclusion point where he sniffed everything, and he looks up at me like, all right, we can go in now. I've checked everything out. I'm like, oh, no, no, we're doing something while we're out here. One of us is doing something while we're out here. I don't care what you, really which one. But one of, so a few more minutes pass. He finally does what he needs to do, and we, and we go inside. And I'm thinking, when it, that happened, I'm thinking, he's forgotten why we're here. That's what I'm thinking. He, he sniffed the ground. He thought that's why we were here is to sniff. And he, real, he forgot that we were here for something else. And, and it hit me, even in that moment, I thought, okay, this is going to fit tomorrow's message. Like, we're going to work this into the message because there's, it, it is the idea that we've forgotten why we're here. I want you to hang on to that for a minute, and that'll make sense here in just a minute. So uh, today we're finishing up our series, Deconstructing Doubt. We're going to talk about the truth of the resurrection and our key verse for this morning comes out of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. I'll put it on the screen to, so we can look at it together. Verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most, we of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. Easy for me to say. I've been talking too much this weekend, right? So based on this passage, 
this key, key passage. It says, if Jesus has, didn't rise from the dead, there's a lot of things that are just true. Number one, I would say, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Wellsprings is stupid. Like, what we're doing here is it's a waste. I mean, our faith is, is useless. Our preaching is useless. So is your faith. Uh, number two, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then I'm a liar. Because I've taught consistently that Jesus rose from the dead, and because Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And I'm, that's a lie to me, if, I, if that's not true. Number three, we're all wasting our time. I mean, so many of you, so many of us, spend so much energy to do what it is that we do with, with time and money and energy and prayers, and it's all a waste if Jesus is still in the ground. If his body is rotting somewhere in the ground, some corpse uh, remains of bones and powder, if, he's in, if that's it, then we're, we're all wasting our time. Number four, we're all going to hell. Because that means we're all still in our sins. He didn't pay for our sins. We'll still stand before a holy God. I'll still stand before a holy God. And I can only speak for me, but, but I promise you, my level of holiness is not nearly the standard it needs to be for me to come into the presence of God on my own without his help. And I, I can speak with a lot of confidence that yours is not either. Um, we, we've all sinned far too much to satisfy the standard of a holy, perfect, righteous God. And we'll all be found guilty and we'll all be sent out from his presence because a risen Savior is not there in the throne room of God saying, this one here's with me. I know he made a lot of mistakes, Dad, but he's with me. I paid for his sin. My resurrection, my death on the cross was to cover his sins. It covered it. He's with me. Let him in. And if Jesus is not alive, he's not there to do that. And I'm in trouble. And you're in trouble. Another thing we know from this passage is that our loved ones are gone. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then when you stand at the graveside, you're not going to see them again. Well, I, I often preach when I do a funeral that the, the passage where it says, we sorrow but not like those who have no hope. Because of the hope of Christ, we have hope we're going to see these people again. But not if Jesus is still on the ground. If he didn't rise from the dead, they're not going to rise from the dead either. They're just gone. And that means, according to Paul, that we're the most pitiful people on the planet. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It really is quite a list when you, when you look at it. Wellspring's stupid. I'm a liar. We're all wasting our time. We're all going to hell. Our loved ones are gone. We're the most pitiful people on the planet. Congratulations, you're dismissed. Let me just wrap, the, wrap it up. That's a, great, that's a great list, isn't it? Horrible. But what, what the reality is, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then all of those things are turned on their head also. That means that what we do here as a church is not just a religious thing. What we do here as a church is among the most important things that there is to do, and you're a part of that. What it also means is that I'm telling you the truth. I'm not a liar, and you can trust in the truth of God even more than trust in me. We're not wasting our time. Every bit of energy, time, money, prayers that we give towards the kingdom of God will be multiplied then some to make an impact in the lives of others. That means we're not going to go to hell. We'll be ushered into the presence of God because Jesus is there welcoming us, covering our sin because of the, of the cross and the empty tomb. Our loved ones are not gone. They'll be there to, to meet us. If they gave their life to Christ, they'll be there to meet us and welcome us and show us around heaven. They've already been there for a while, checking things out. And far from being the most pitiful people on the planet, we're the ones who, who really know the inside track to what's really happening in this world. The dichotomy between those two lists is stark. It really is kind of stunning when you put it all in one screen like that, that something of such consequence, the resurrection of Jesus, did it happen or not, 
doesn't receive a moment of our attention most weeks. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, most weeks we worry about paying our bills, we worry about keeping our house clean, we worry about watching our favorite TV show or tracking our favorite sports team. We take the kids here or there, we pick up after our terrible, little, disobedient, possessed puppy, you know, hypothetically, but, but we don't think about the resurrection of Jesus at all, and yet the consequence of if that happened or didn't changes everything about everything for us. So today, I want to think about it. I want us to give us some good thought. Uh, title this message, The Truth About the Resurrection. If you're a believer in Jesus, I hope that this message gives you a bit of clarity, a bit of hope, a bit of confidence um, about what life really means. And if you're not a believer, I just want to be candid with you. I hope this message acts like a rock in your shoe. You know, you get a rock in your shoe and you, you can't do anything else until you deal with the rock. Like every step you take goes, oh, I wish that stupid rock wasn't in my shoe. I hope this message is like a rock in your shoe and drives you crazy, that you can't ignore it until you do, stop and do something with it. You know, because I care. I want that for you. I, I, want that to be, I want that to be true of you. So let's examine the evidence that we know. And I say no because without bias, Christians, non-Christians, experts in the field whether it be archaeology or theology or ancient history or literature or whatever, experts who have some connection to the field of Jesus, a vast majority of them, Christian, atheists, non-Christians, other religions, a vast majority of scholars agree with the the points I'm going to make and put on the screen. So this is like academically known facts. These things are not controversial. And there's one little piece that we do disagree on, and that's the part we've got to talk about. So fact number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. There are very few people who are in the know who object that a man named Jesus lived. Very few people object that a man named Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Uh, in fact, there, I, I heard from a, just this week, from a, um, I, I saw a study from an uh, atheist scholar who doesn't agree that Jesus is God, that there are 15 independent sources citing the crucifixion of Jesus that were written within 100 years of his death. 15 different sources that we still have copies of today within 100 years. And that's unheard of in ancient literature. Uh, In fact, how many believe Alexander the Great lived? Show of hands. A few of you. Some of you aren't so sure. You're skeptical. That's tough. Okay, so Alexander the Great. You know how many independent sources we have of Alexander the Great living that were written within 100 years of his life? Anybody know? Zero. First thing we have about Alexander the Great is 300 years later. Uh, Buddha, the first evidence... You know how many... Manuscripts about Buddha we have within 100 years of his lifetime? Zero. The earliest for Buddha is about 600 years after Siddhartha Gautama, whatever his last name is, died. About 600 years later, Jesus has 15 independent sources written within 100 years of his life. There's no one else like him in so many ways, including this one. There's just no one else like him. Point number two is very soon after his death, his followers had very real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of Jesus alive. Now, some people think he was alive. Some people think it was just a vision or a dream or something. But, but the idea that they believed it was Jesus alive, everyone agrees with that. Now, as a Christian, I, I think it means he was alive and they saw him. And because they saw him, their life was changed. Atheists may disagree on that. But, but even atheists would say, who study this, say those guys believed it. They believed it. Number three, their lives were then transformed as a result even to the point of being willing to die specifically for the faith in the resurrected Jesus. They were all willing to die for their faith. 
And almost all of the people who saw Jesus alive after his death were either killed by the Jewish leaders or by the Romans. Almost every one of them because of their belief that Jesus rose from the dead and their unwillingness to not talk about it. We're far too willing to not talk about it today. But they were unwilling to stop talking about what they saw. And because they were unwilling to stop talking about it, almost every one of them uh, was killed for it. Now, at first glance, you may say, no, wait a minute, that's not, that's not that big a deal. I mean, the 9-11 hijackers were believed that Muhammad was going to, Allah was going to give them uh, paradise because they flew a plane into a building. They believed their faith. That stuff happens all the time. They were just wrong. So what's the difference? Well, it's, it's dramatically different. We talked about this in a seminar a little bit yesterday and packed it a little more, but it's dramatically different. If I were to convince you, if I was a charismatic leader, you know, imagine that. If I was a charismatic leader and I could convince you uh, to drink the Kool-Aid and commit mass suicide like Jim Jones or whoever did that, if I was able to do that, I have no, no confidence I could pull that off for, for you guys. But if I was able to do that and, you know, the authorities came in tomorrow and saw a whole bunch of us dead, that would be really impressive if you died for your faith in me. But how different it is if I knew it was a lie and did it too. Like you thought it was true. It was a lie, but you thought it was true. If you stole the body of Jesus and then told people you saw him alive, would you be willing to die for that? Would you be willing to watch your kids get tortured because they said what you told them? Would you be willing to watch your wife go to prison and be stuck away in a, in a hole for years because you convinced her it was true, but you know it was false? It's dramatically different for the initial witnesses. Not for us today, but for the initial witnesses, dramatically different. And yet every one of them was convinced enough to, to do that uh, along the way. The transformation is not just of the, those individuals. Transformation hit all of Judaism. I mean, just consider a few of the things. They, they worshiped on Saturday. That was a holy day, and they shifted it to Sunday. We're here this morning because we're honoring the day Jesus rose from the dead when, in fact, the Jews worshiped on Saturday for centuries. The kosher diet's gone. We can eat bacon now. Hallelujah. Like, that's a great thing. <laughs> Thankful to God for bacon. Uh, no more animal sacrifices. You know, they don't have to, they don't, the sacrifices continued for like another 40 years in the Jewish religion until the temple was destroyed. And so all the Jews would have continued to do animal sacrifices just on their normal routines. Can you imagine the first time the Christians said, I, I don't need to do that anymore? My sins are covered. I don't need to do that anymore. Communion began because of that. We celebrated that just a minute ago because of the Last Supper of Jesus, where he instituted it, his body and his blood given for us. The acceptance of Gentiles, it wasn't just a Jewish sect anymore. Jewish feasts and circumcision went away. Can you imagine being the first, the first uh, time your, your family had a little boy, and you said, we get to make a decision about this circumcision. It's not a ritual thing now. We get to decide if that happens or not. I mean, just uh, dramatic shifts, all because they thought Jesus rose from the dead. Number four, these things were taught very soon, very early after the crucifixion. A lot of us, if you've studied it at all, and you've heard skeptics talk about it, they'll say something like, well, the Bible came together hundreds of years later, this thing developed and evolved and legends grew and all that kind of stuff. That's just not true. Uh, if you were in a seminar, you would have got a little more detail, but I promise you, just trust me on that. And more than 2,000 years later, most of the world still believe the amazing things about Jesus. Most of the world still knows about Jesus, which does not make sense if he was a carpenter who got convicted and, and buried and now he's dead. That doesn't make sense. I mean, even among those who aren't Christians, Hindus teach that Jesus was a prophet. Buddhists revere him as a wise sage. Muslims say that Jesus was sinless. 
You may not realize that Islam teaches that Jesus was sinless. Even atheists honor Jesus. People who hate the church say, I don't care for Christians, but man, that Jesus guy, he was a wise, ethical teacher, which is not true if he was lying to us. But if he rose from the dead, that's true. And they say that. This thing about the Islam piece. Uh, two of the, the two leading world religions in the world, Christianity and Islam, nearly 4 billion people in the world today say that Jesus was sinless 2,000 years later after his death. Both Christians and Muslims believe that. Almost 4 billion people in our world today. I can't get five people in my house to think I'm sinless. And Jesus has nearly 4 billion 2,000 years later. No one will know who I am 2,000 years from now. Number five and six, five is James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience seeing Jesus. We read about James in the Bible. We read about James from other sources like Eusebius and Clement and Hegesippus and Josephus and Jerome. He's written about in a lot of ancient sources. In the same way, number six, the Christian persecutor Paul became a believer after he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. We read about Paul in the Bible. We also read about Paul from ancient sources like Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. I mean, here are two guys, James and Paul, who didn't want the resurrection to happen. They weren't looking for it. They were glad he was dead. They thought he was crazy. Mark 6 and Mark 3 say that James went to get Jesus off the road preaching because he was, quote, beside himself. It was a nice way of saying he thought he was a schizophrenic. Like, you're really just a Jewish carpenter, but now you're saying you're a holy man. It's like you're two people. You're, You're crazy. They were glad he was dead. And then all of a sudden, they were devoting their whole life to preaching that he was no longer dead because something changed their perspective forever. I mean, when you bottom line these six facts that everybody agrees to, everyone almost agrees that before the crucifixion, we all agree with what happened there, the, the, the reality there. And we all agree with what happened after the crucifixion. The only thing, the only historical bucket that we don't agree on is inside that little three-day window. Go ahead to the next, next slide, next slide. One more. All right, there you are. There's where we don't agree. What happened inside the three-day window? We agree on everything else. But Friday night to Sunday morning, what happened there? I explain that by saying that Jesus rose from the dead, just like he said he was going to. That Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again. I explain it by saying that our creator came to visit his creation. And we killed him for it. But death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. Sin couldn't dominate him. John 1 says, Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And if you believe in him, if you believe that he's God, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, if you accept him now as the leader of your life, he will give you the right to become a child of God. Imagine that, that the God of all the universe, the God who spread out the stars, the God who created everything you've ever seen, wants to have you and his family, wants to adopt you and was willing to pay for that, not with money or possessions or time, but with the very blood of Jesus, because he wanted to be able to adopt you. Romans 6 says that as, as we're lower down, we're talking about baptism today. Baptism is a, 
an ancient ceremony that we still do today. There's going to be at least about one baptism this service. There was three last service. Um, we didn't plan on all of them until it happened, which was really cool. And, and Romans, the Bible says that when someone understands who Jesus is and they want to give their life to him, if they want to believe and accept it, they're, they're baptized. And in Romans 6, it says that in baptism, we're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So just as Jesus was lowered down into the ground, buried, we're lowered underneath the water. And just as Jesus came up out of the grave alive, we're raised up out of the water. And when we do that, we're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You'll have a chance to participate in that in just a minute. You know, people talk about uh, favorite parts of ceremonies. Like I, a common thing, there was a movie, I think, a few years ago that my wife likes. And it, there was one of the big uh, motifs was this person's a wedding planner. And they said that they love, uh, they love looking at the groom's face when the bride comes down the aisle. And everybody's back looking at her, but, but they're looking at his face. You know, that's the moment they like. Uh, my moment with baptism is a little different than that. My, when baptism happens, when, I, when I'm doing a baptism or I'm watching a video you know, sometimes we'll put videos together of compilations of baptism and put some music behind it. It's a touching moment, and it always gets me teary. You know, movies don't usually get me teary, uh, except for like The Notebook, because I'm thinking, I've wasted two hours of my life, I'll never get back. That gets me a little teary. <laughs> but most movies don't get me teary. Uh, but when I watch a baptism video, it always gets me teary. And, and one of my favorite moments is, you know, people are often nervous, because a, it's a big decision, but B, there's a little bit of stage fright stuff there in front of people. Whether it's a small group or in front of the whole group, whatever, there's a little bit of nerves. And so they're a little uptight, you know, just a little bit. And so when they, they close their, they pinch their nose and I lower them down. When I, they come back up, the, the nerves and the, they just need a breath. And so when they come back up, there's like a, just a big breath. And I, I've always wondered, is that what happened with Jesus? They, they lowered him in the water or in the grave and then life came back into his dead, lifeless body. And I just picture Jesus sucking in that first breath of air. And we identify that in baptism. It's pretty powerful. I wonder if, I wonder if that was true. You know, we had three baptisms in first service this morning. Two we had planned and somebody came up and said, I, I feel like God's telling me to do this today. And we were ready for them. And we, I know we have at least one in this service later, and, and again, I'm hoping there's several of you who either were planning on it we didn't know, or you're not planning on it, like my friend Mark from first service, um, but God's been planning on you, and I just want you to know we're ready for that. Uh, we, have, we have shirts you can change into, uh, we've got kind of the one-size-fits-all shorts that are cute. I mean, I'm not, I'm not lying to you about that. They're, one size fits all, anything's cute, but we'll, that'll cover everything and all that, and you can change into that, we'll baptize you. And it's a, it's a powerful moment where you're identifying with what we know to be true about the person of Jesus. The early church, a, a group smaller than those of us here in the room today, about 120 people. That group believed that Jesus was God, they believed that God raised him from the dead, and they accepted that what he said was true, that all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to him. Because of what he went through on the cross, because he rose from the dead, because the grave couldn't hold him, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the group applied that authority to their very lives. Because they had heard Jesus say to go and make disciples of all nations. And they went. And he was always with them. Through every trial and every setback and every disappointment, and he's still with us today as we go. 
But ultimately, all of that boils down to what's inside the three-day window. We agree on what happened before. We all agree on what happened after. What happened from Friday night till Sunday morning? Because the answer to that question is of utmost importance to you and to me, whether you realize it or not. And the way you answer that question is of utmost importance to him, whether you realize it or acknowledge it or not. You know, we started this message saying that most of us go through life never really giving this consequential piece of question much thought. It doesn't get much attention. What really happened inside that red box? But if you decide about it, it changes everything. Once you accept it, it frames and purposes the very rest of your life. And I want to encourage you to to accept that what Jesus said was true. You know, I have four daughters. Uh, Two are are out and grown, doing their own thing. Uh, Two are still in high school. I have 16-year-old twins who are juniors in high school. And when they were in kindergarten, uh, they wanted to ride the bus. Now, as somebody who had ridden a bus, I knew it wasn't that great of a deal. But they were very excited about the bus. They wanted to ride the bus, and one to ride the bus, and one to ride the bus. And so they wore us out. They're two of the most stubborn children you'll ever meet. And they, it's, you know, they get something in their mind. They're just all about it. And so they just kept us on about the bus. And so finally, mostly just to put them off, like, okay, we, we're, we're tired of talking about this. So he said, first grade. First grade, you can ride the bus. Kindergarten, no bus. First grade, you can ride the bus. They were young for their class. We wanted them to have a little, anyway. And they quit asking about it. Like, okay, cool. And we thought they forgot about it, out of sight, out of mind, until uh, like two weeks before first grade. And they started wearing us out again. Like, oh, first grade, bus, bus, bus. Oh, great. So uh, again, as somebody who's ridden a bus, I knew this was going to disappoint pretty quickly. But that, that, they didn't know that, and they were excited about it. So as the day comes for them to go to first day of school, first, first grade, we said, listen, we'll take you to school because first day, you got all your stuff, we'll take it all in. And then on the way home, you can ride the bus. Well, they were just over the moon. They were just so excited. So the first day of school comes, we get all the backpack loaded with all the supplies and all the things, and, and we go to drop them off. We said, now remember, after school, for, you get the bus, and here's where you go, and here's the whole thing. Walked them all through it. Because um, they're, they're young for their class, and we just want to make sure they were ready. And They were fine. They're, they're fearless. They've always been fearless, especially if they're together. If they're off by themselves, maybe not as fearless, but if they're together, they'll do anything. So they were, we'll ride the bus. Great. And so uh, we go about the day, do our, do our stuff, and end of the day, end of school, we, called, we were out and about doing some stuff, so we called Lauren and Emily, who were in middle school at the time, and we said, be sure to get them off the bus. We want you, like, get outside of the house. They said, we'll watch for them. No, no, get, get, like, go in the front yard, because they drop them off at the end of the street. So go, look down at the end of the street, watch the bus pull up, watch them get off, watch them make it in, make sure they get home. Okay, okay. so about the time the, the school bus came, we get a phone call from Lauren, our oldest, and she said they didn't get off the bus. We're like, what are you talking about? So, well, the bus came, kids got off, bus left, no care in Erica. We're like, okay, we're coming. We'll be there in a few minutes. Just walk down to the bus stop. They probably just went in the other yard or something. It's fine. So we, we book it there, get there to the, the bus stop, and they're not there. And Lauren and Emily are there, and they're kind of nervous, and, they're, and there's, they're, there's no care in Erica. We're like, okay. So I said, Amy, you stay here. We'll start searching. I'm going to go to the school. And so Amy calls our church staff, and they start driving around the neighborhood looking, because I mean, they're right here, right? And Amy's getting pretty nervous, but I'm, I'm the calm one. I'm the, it's fine, it's fine. I'll go to the school. We'll figure it out. 
So I go into the administrator and say, hey, I need to talk to you guys. My girls didn't get off the bus or first grade. Karen Erica, talk to them. And uh, the principal was great. Sister principal was helping me. She's great. Uh, Jill Justice, she's now at Bethesda. And she was great. She, was, she gave out, like, here, she said, we're going to find them. There's like eight things that could be. She lists all the options. And we just start checking them off. Well, we called the school bus driver. And he came in. He's like, I, I can't say that I know which ones they are. I mean, it's the first day they rode the bus. I can't. I know what, there was no kids on the bus when I got done. We went back to school, the bus is empty. It's like, oh, that's one of the things off the list. And we checked something else. She has the teachers start driving around the neighborhood. When Amy saw the teachers driving the neighborhood, that's when she got freaked out. Because we don't know where our kids are at. And at this point, this has been like 30 minutes, 45, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. We have no idea where our kids, and we're checking off the, the mental list of where our kids could be. And I'm picturing them walking down duplex, you know, just, just having, a, having time with their life. I don't know, or somebody's got my kids, or somebody's got my kids. And I'm, I'm beginning to get nervous as that list of seven or eight, nine things gets down to there's only a couple options left, and we check off the last one. And I still remember her face. I can picture it to this day. Jill Justice, assistant principal, looks me in the eye and says, do we call the police now? It's your call. And I thought, oh, my word. And so I said, so let, let me just call Amy one more time. So I called Amy. She's crying, just, just a, it's 45 minutes. We don't know where our kids are at. And she had told Lauren, she said, Lauren, just go down to the house and stay at the house. We have people driving all over, looking, maybe somebody will bring them home and we don't know they're there. Just go down to the house. You got your cell phone. Okay, so Lauren goes down to the house and she, she walks up to the front door and our, we have our door and we have the two side lights, you know, on the door. And she's walking up to the house. She sees through the skylight our television and Mario Kart's on the television. And Karen and Erica had been there the whole time. Like they had gotten off the bus stop early and walked around as Lauren and Emily went to the bus stop and they went in and played Mario Kart. And Lauren goes in and she's like, you're going to want to turn that off. Like you're, <laughs> you're not going to want that on when mom and dad get home. It's not going to be good. And we got home and I gave them a big hug and then I wanted to beat them. Like I said, where, where did you think we were? And they said, I don't know. We thought maybe you were in the attic or something for 45 minutes. Like do we hang out in the attic for a long time? What in the world are you talking about? And, but we we're just so glad they were there. Like, the, we'll talk to you about this tomorrow, about what you didn't do right or whatever. But like today, we just, we're just glad you're here. And if during that time, you know, if during that time, my older kids would have complained about anything, I would have lost it. Like, Dad, Karen and Erica probably did this to themselves. They probably did something stupid. Can we squeeze some ice cream? I mean, I'd have had one fewer child today. I wouldn't have had four. I'd had three because I'd have killed that one. And I'd be doing a great prison ministry right now because I would have killed my kid. <laughs> or like if they said, I'm getting hungry today. Can we go get some supper? We'll get them later. Like I would, have, I would have slapped my kid. Like what are you talking about? My little girls are lost. Maybe somebody's got them. I don't know where they are. But I'm not worried about how you view life right now. You just need to help us find these kids. And I don't know that I've ever been closer to the heart of God than I was that moment. Because I think God looks down at the world and he sees the church, not Wellspring, but he sees the church not really care that he's got lost kids out there. And he, he sees the church fighting with one another about things that don't matter in terms of his lost kids. About their preferences or their needs or they, they're this or they need more of that or they need help. And I think God wants to pull his, if God has hair, he wants to pull his hair out. Like, why are you not, why are you fighting with each other when I've got my kids out there lost? What are you, what are you doing about getting my kids 
to me. And all the, the, all the, listen, if you're not connected to God, I just want to say to you, all the images that, that the church over the years has given to you are likely wrong. God is not the ogre in heaven who's wagging his finger at you wanting to tell you what you've done wrong. He knows all of that, but he already paid for all of that on the cross. Because he rose from the dead, all of that doesn't matter now. He's paid for that. He just wants you to come home. And, and he'll talk about that later. You know, I talked to Karen Erica later about school bus etiquette and how we do that. But that was later. I just wanted to hug my kids. I was just glad that no one had my kids. I was picturing being interviewed on Dateline or Lester Holt or something. I just wanted my kids home. And if you're not connected to the Lord, all of that other stuff is just lies. God just wants you home. Because the God who loves you, who created you, came to his own creation and lived a tough life so he knows what it's like and he died for your sins and mine and he didn't stay in the ground. He rose from the dead, which makes all of us work. And if you don't know him, I think today's your day. So in just a minute, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to pray for us. And then the band's going to come and lead us in a song or two. You've got plenty of time. And I'm not going to go to the corner and wait for people to pray. I'm just going to go out to the lobby. And I just want you to come out and join me on the lobby. And, and we'll talk later about, make sure you understand this and that. And we'll talk later about what the Bible says. We'll do all of that stuff later. But if you feel like God's telling you to... To pledge your life to God. That's what 1 Peter says baptism is. It's a pledge to God. And if you feel like God's telling you to pledge your life to God, just meet me out in the lobby. And we have shirts and shorts and all this stuff for you. Don't let any of the, we've tried to take away every excuse. Just come meet me in the lobby, as Mark, my friend, did first service. And we'll baptize you. And we'll celebrate it as a church. Because Jesus died and rose again for you. Let's pray. God, I, I pray that you would remove any distraction that's between you and your kids. I pray there wouldn't be an er errant word from my mouth. I pray there wouldn't be an excuse in anyone's head, but that you would remove every single distraction and you would just compel those who are not connected with you vitally, you would compel them to, to yield today and stop running and stop excusing and stop pushing you away. And they would, they would be compelled today to pledge themselves to you. Spiritual cleansing, as Acts says. And so I pray your spirit would be heavy in this room. We'd sense you here. And whatever it is you call us to, for all of us, whatever it is you call us to, I pray we'd sense that today and we'd obey because you've called. I pray in Jesus' name.